I encourage you this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one there in the pew, you can grab that one. Book of Philippians chapter 2, and this morning we're going to be looking um, at uh, verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16, Philippians chapter 2, and if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, and he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. You can be seated. This morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to keep this thought in mind. How do we live as those who are being sanctified? How do we live as those who are being sanctified? Last week, we looked at this wonderful text where Paul talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we talked about that dual role that the Scripture teaches us of sanctification, of sanctification being not only of something that God does in us, but He has justified us in saving us, and then He is sanctifying us throughout our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's also a human side where we are putting in work and effort and pursuing after Him and seeking after Him on a daily and a regular basis. God is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we understand the importance of sanctification when it comes to the life of the believer. Uh, We have to see this process growing in our lives. We desire to see this process growing in our lives, that every day we're becoming more conformed into the image of Jesus. But how does that practically work its way out? As Christians living in this world, how do we desire, what should we be looking for to see in our own lives as that process of sanctification is growing? So now he's going to turn now and give them this demonstration of the sanctified life. If God is working in you, What does it look like as you live these things out? Paul referred to there as the good pleasure of God, to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does that look like? What should be the distinguishing marks of of a saved person? And even more so, why is it important? Why is God doing this? God is not doing this for no reason at all, but He has a very specific purpose by which He has saved us and by which He is sanctifying us and by ultimately by which He will glorify us. So the first thing I want you to notice in this passage this morning is that we are to have a life that trusts God's purposes, a life that trusts God's purposes. Look at verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, the word that Paul uses there for grumbling is the idea of murmuring or an expression of of discontent. It's really the idea of complaining. And and the word that Paul uses there speaks to the idea of the the guttural muttering sound that some people say make when they're frustrated about something. You know, somebody gets upset and you can hear them over there by themselves and they're just, you know, mumbling under their breath. That's the kind of grumbling that Paul is referring to here. Now, the world has no shortage of grumbling people. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but pretty much anywhere you go today, you're going to find somebody who is grumbling or upset about anything. You go to a fast food restaurant, and the person who's behind the counter isn't serving fast enough, and so somebody begins to grumble and complain. 
right? We pick up our phone and we try to call somebody and they don't answer the phone. And so we grumble and we complain. We mutter under our breath. We're upset because things aren't going the way that we hoped that they would go or the way that we expected them to go. But even inside the Christian world, we can be tempted to fall into grumbling and complaining. We can grumble first about those things that are happening around us and the people that are around us and the things that they are doing or the things maybe that they're not doing. And this happened even very early on in the New Testament church. Remember in the book of Acts that there was a complaint, a disagreement that arose about the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. There was grumbling happening inside the church. And even today, we can be tempted to fall into discontent. And this is the reason why Paul challenged the church, even here in this letter, just a few verses earlier, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know what solves grumbling? Is viewing everybody else as more important than you are. As viewing other people as more important than our opinions or our thoughts or our desires. So Paul says, don't do anything with selfishness and avoid the idea of grumbling. We can be tempted to grumble against our brothers and sisters in Christ, but more profoundly and perhaps even more seriously, we can be tempted to grumble against God. And this is what Paul is referring to specifically here in this passage. In the language that Paul uses, he's referring and pointing to the idea of the Israelites, who you recall from studying the Old Testament had no shortage of grumbling and complaining to God as they left Egypt and journeyed through the promised land and through the wilderness Numbers chapter 14, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. And even the psalmist in Psalm 106 says, but they grumbled in their tents and they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. You know, the Israelites had barely washed the mud of brick making off of their feet before they started longing for the better days of leeks and onions back in Egypt. Now, I can't even imagine this, right? I mean, we, we put our th- try to put our thoughts into their thoughts, and you think about laboring for hundreds and hundreds of years, all of your ancestors as far back as you can remember, being in slavery, being forced to make bricks and to build buildings and to suffer under the, the, the tyrannical reign of Pharaoh. And all of a sudden now, God has fulfilled his promise. He's taking you out of this bondage. He has sent a deliverer, sent one Moses to lead you out. And as soon as you get out, just because you begin to encounter a little bit of difficulty, begin to encounter some trials and tribulations, you don't think, well, Lord, you know, we don't understand. Can you help us maybe have a better grasp on what you're doing? No, they say, well, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. You know, at least in Egypt, we had onions to eat. Here, we don't have anything, Lord. What, what are you doing, God? Why are you doing it this way? We just don't like it. So they were grumbling. And Paul points out, he says, don't grumble. And he says, don't dispute. And grumbling and disputing kind of tie themselves together because what grumbling leads to is disputing because disputing is what begins to happen on the inside of us as we carry our grumbling out to full measure. Because then we begin to calculate on the inside or try to rationalize our upset feelings. When it's used in Romans chapter 1, it's translated as imagination, which helps us to understand that it's what's happening on the inside of us. We're disputing in our heart whether the goodness of God is really real or, or whether somebody is truly our friend or whether they're our enemy. But it can also then manifest itself in an outward disputing if we mull on it too long, if we consider it and allow it to grow. So Paul says that we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. He says to do all things. So this is everything that he's talked about before. 
So he's talking about that process of sanctification. So he says, as you're living out your Christian life, you've been saved by God, and now you're walking this Christian journey, and you're endeavoring to pursue holiness and righteousness and obedience to Christ. He says, in everything that happens, not just the good things, not just the semi-good things, but in everything, he says, do all of those things without grumbling or disputing. So he's calling them to an idea of obedience, but obedience that does not grumble against God because obedience can be done in two ways. Obedience can be done voluntarily or obedience can be done begrudgingly. William Hendrickson in his commentary told the story of a young boy who was told repeatedly to sit down and he did not want to sit down. And finally, after being threatened with punishment, he obeyed and he sat down, but he looked up at his parents and he says, on the outside, I may be sitting down, but on the inside, I'm standing up. And that's what begrudging obedience looks like. We may do it because we have to, but we don't want to do it. But the type of obedience that Paul is calling for here is not an obedience that is begrudgingly. We don't want to pursue holiness and sanctification because we feel like we have to. We pursue it because we want to. And we pursue it because we trust the one who has called us to do it. We're to obey God in all his instruction and to do it willingly and cheerfully and to do it without discontent, to do it without grumbling or complaining. Now, Paul could speak so very clearly to this because he had lived his life with such an example. Paul had been shipwrecked. He had been imprisoned. He had been beaten. He had been whipped. He had been hungry. He had been persecuted in in countless different ways, but he lived his life in obedience and joy. And he did so without grumbling or complaining about his circumstances. He he wouldn't let people know what he was going through, but we don't see him grumbling about the situation that God had placed him in. And in fact, you remember earlier in this letter, we looked in chapter one when Paul said, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else that most of my brethren are trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Later on in that chapter, he says, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul had the purpose perspective on life. He had a life that trusted God's purposes. As Christians, we are called to serve God in total submission without grumbling and without complaining. That means every area of our life. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. He said, do all things, do your duty in every branch of it without murmurings. Do it and do not find fault with it. Mind your work and do not quarrel with it. God's commands were given to be obeyed, not to be disputed. This greatly adorns our profession and shows we serve a good master whose service is freedom and whose work is its own reward. Brothers and sisters, if we truly believe God is good, and he is, then we should obey him without delay and without grumbling. We have to trust him. We have to trust that his promises are yes and amen, and that his promises are that he will never leave us or forsake us, and his promises that he will never give us a burden that is too great to bear for ourselves, that we can trust in him for his help. We know peace in this life by full obedience and trust. If we ever get to a place in our Christian life where we are feeling worried and anxious, it's because we have ceased to trust in the goodness of God. I've shared with you my own story of of struggles with anxiety in the past. 
And the more I read the scriptures, the more I realize that it is true of myself. When I am anxious about something, it's because I am lacking the trust that I need in the Lord. So Paul says that we are to live a life that trusts God's purposes. So I don't know what God has for you this afternoon. I don't know what God has for you next week or 10 years from now. God may call some of you to walk through difficult, trying seasons in your life. But if he does, it is for your good and for his glory. And he will accomplish his purposes and his work in you. And we have to be willing as believers to say, Lord, I may not understand it, but I'm going to trust you because you are good. And I'm not going to murmur. I'm not going to gripe. I'm not going to complain but I'm going to follow you in obedience and in truth. One commentator said, now listen, this is not a, this would not be a popular quote in most places. But he said, it is always sinful for believers to complain about anything the Lord calls them to do or about any circumstance which He sovereignly allows. If we truly believe that God is God, and we truly believe that God is sovereign, it is sinful for us to complain about the things and the circumstances of our life. That doesn't mean we have to be happy. I'm sure there were days Paul was not happy to be sitting in a jail, or happy to be shipwrecked, or happy to be beaten. But he didn't grumble against the Lord. He didn't complain. We live in a time and a world where we, as Christians, sometimes even as Christians, we believe that because of who we are and because of the time we live, it's like, well, I don't deserve this. I, I, why is this happening to me? I, I don't understand. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get angry at the Lord and complain against the brothers and sisters. We have to be so careful. So careful. Because no matter what happens to us in this life, there are people in this room who have suffered through the loss of loved ones, suffered through sickness, loss of job, loss of ability. And all of those things are happening according to God's perfect plan and purpose. We promise, the word promises us that nothing in this life happens by accident. And that gives us great hope. It gives us great joy to know it's not Satan who is in charge of this world. Satan only can operate and do what God allows him and gives him permission to do. He is not the ruler and reigner of this world. God the Father is sitting on high, and Jesus is sitting at his right hand, ruling and reigning and doing everything that God has ordained him to do. And what a joy and hope we have in knowing that no matter what this world brings against us, no matter what trials God may ask us to walk through, that we can hope in him and that he will carry us through. And we don't have to grumble or complain because we know that he is doing what is best for us. So not only do we have a life that trusts God's promises, but we also, notice next, we need to have a life that exemplifies the faith. Look at the first part of verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Now the word blameless speaks to the idea of our outward conduct. It's the outward demonstration of moral integrity that comes from a heart that has been transformed by God. So we know that the Scripture teaches us that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Think back to the day that you became a Christian. And you remember that there are certain things that, that instantaneously all of a sudden just changed on the inside of you. 
The things you used to love, you now hated. The things you used to hate, you now love. God has transformed you into a new person. And then he continues to do that developmental work through sanctification. And the idea of being blameless is that how we live those things out, the change that God has wrought on the inside of us. How is it demonstrable to the people who are around us? This is what the world sees when it looks upon a Christian's life. Now, this is not talking about sinless perfectionism. This is not talking about that you become blameless through by becoming sinless, but it is talking about that continued progress of sanctification. This is calling for us to live our lives in such a way that no one would have an opportunity to accuse us of doing wrong. Doing wrong according to God's standards. Let me clarify that because I think sometimes, especially in the world we live in, There are going to be times as Christians, we're going to be accused of doing wrong because we stand upon the word of God. We're going to be accused of doing wrong or being wrong because we take a stand on abortion or the sanctity of marriage or other controversial issues that are happening in our world. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is saying here is that as Christians, we should live our lives that nobody has any ground of which to point at us and accuse us of being a liar or accuse us of being a gossip or a thief or sexually immoral or murderers. He says, live your life to be blameless before others. He reminds us of this in Romans where he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We want to live our lives in such a way to exemplify the work that God is doing in our heart. Peter writes, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they may slander you as evildoers They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Paul says, live your life as one that exemplifies the faith or the work that God is in you by being blameless. But then he also says to be innocent. And if you have a King James Version, it translates as harmless. And this means to be unmixed or pure in this, whereas the blameless refer to our outward working of our character, the innocent refers to the inward part of our character. It's who we are on the inside. And it's a word that was used in the, Old, in the New Testament of wine that had not been diluted down with water or a metal that had not been weakened by mixing it with other kinds of metals. It was pure, not diluted, not watered down. And this refers to our thoughts and our motives. Now, no one knows the inward part of us but God and God alone. But the Scripture is very clear that He sees every part of that. Even the secret thoughts that we think no one else knows about, God sees very clearly. And in Scripture tells us that we will give an account for every idle word on the day of judgment. So we are to live our lives blameless before the Lord, blameless before the world, but before God as innocent children of His, in our thoughts, in our motives, that we are to keep our minds pure. There should not be one thing in our heart or in our motives that should not be there. Now, how do we do this? We do this only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this in our own ability, but God has promised that by the power, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, that we can live our lives blameless before the world and innocent before Him in our heart and in our motivations. Paul says that we are to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Now we free that phrase children of God and we instantly think about those who are born again. 
Now, Paul here is not talking that you do these things in order to become a child of God. These believers are already children of God. He's already approved that or proven that throughout his letter. But what he's telling them, he says, you want to become a blameless and innocent child of God above reproach. He's talking about that continued work in their hearts and lives. He says to become like a child of God and to continue to work in that process, you have to imitate your father. Have you ever seen children who imitate their parents? Right? You look around and you see them and they do the same thing. As a, as a father of young children, I see this happen all the time. You do something in a certain way and then your children do that same thing in that same way. Now, you didn't teach them to do that. You didn't sit them down one day and say, this is the way that we do this. But they watch and they imitate. They watch and they learn. And as children of God, we are to watch the Lord. We're to study His Word and to know what He has called us to do. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, for as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul tells us to imitate the Father. Become children of God above reproach. Read the word, know the word, study the word, spend time with the Father. The only way that you can become an imitator of Jesus Christ, an imitator of God that you can follow after that to become the child of God who Paul is calling us to be here is by spending time with the Lord. You can't do it by haphazardly thinking about God here and there haphazardly reading the word, haphazardly spending time in prayer. If we want to know God, we must spend time with him. The illustration that's always used is of a husband and wife. If a husband and wife got married and the second that they got home, they started living their life, they never spent any more time together for the rest of their life. How close do you think that marriage is going to be? Not going to be close at all. They might as well not even be married. They're never going to spend time together, never going to share their concerns, never going to share those things together with one another. The only way that a marriage grows is by time spent together. Those of you who are in the room who have been married for for decades can attest to the fact that the longer you are married, the closer you grow in love and the more you grow to that person because you've spent more and more time together. It's the reason that oftentimes when when a couple is old and they've been married for many decades and one of of the spouses pass away, oftentimes it's not very long before the other one passes away. Why? Because they have become so intrinsically connected that it's like everything has changed for them. They're so close that they can't imagine life without the other person. And this is how it should be for us as Christians that we should have this desire to be continually growing as children of God, to spend time with God the Father, to learn as much as we can about Him, to learn everything that He desires for us in our life, that we can't imagine a day going by where we don't spend time with Him. Regeneration makes us children of God. Sanctification is this process whereby we become children of God without reproach, because this is what He says here. Blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. And that word above reproach is without blemish. It's the word that was often used of the sacrifices. You remember in the Old Testament when the sacrificial system was still in place. 
In order to bring a sacrifice to God, in order for it to be accepted, it had to be an animal without blemish. It could not have spot. It could not have a maimed leg or something wrong with it. It had to be a perfect animal sacrifice. And Paul is telling us that in order for us to become children of God, we have to be living our lives in such a way to be sacrifices to God. Paul would refer to this in Romans chapter 12 when he said to commit ourselves to be living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable to Him. Now, how do we live without blemish? Again, it's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we have to be reminding ourselves over and over again. Because we can be so tempted to try to do so much of this in our own strength. And if we try to do it in our own strength, all we do is end up getting frustrated and then we just stop. I've met so many Christians who have tried to strive against sin, strive for holiness and strive for righteousness in their lives. And they end up giving up. Why? Because they're not trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're trying to do it all in their own strength. And Paul says this life is possible. We're not talking about here about something that is unobtainable. Oftentimes, I think people read these passages of Scripture and they think about living a life without grumbling or disputing, living a life that's blameless and innocent, living a life above reproach. That's impossible. But no, brothers and sisters, this life is very possible. If it were not possible, Paul would not be calling us to it. If it were not possible, we would not have examples all throughout the history of the church of people who have lived in such a demonstrable way that they are seeking to be obedient to God and what he calls us to in this text. And for every single one of us in this room this morning, if we are children of God, this is a life that is possible for us. It is a life that is expected of us. So not only is it a life that trusts in God's purposes and a life that exemplifies the faith, I want you to notice thirdly that it's a life that shines in a darkened world. Paul continues there in verse 15 that we're to do this to be children of God above reproach because we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Crooked means wicked. It's the idea of being bent in all directions. And so Paul here is describing the outward actions of the culture and the generation in which they live. He says, as you look out upon the world that you're living in, you see how these people have been twisted beyond comprehension. They've done everything they can to turn away from God and to pursue sin and to pursue self. That word perverse means to be turned out of the way. And it talks about something that is a completed action. And it really defines itself as to being warped or twisted or distorted. Many of you perhaps in this room remember the game Twister. You played it when you were growing up. The game begins with a mat laid out on the floor and people standing up on their feet, and it ends with people twisted in all sorts of contorted shape on their hands and their feet. And the first thing that I thought of when I heard this definition of being twisted and contorted is I thought about that game because once you're twisted and contorted like that, you can't really do anything else, right? You're stuck. You've pursued something and chased after something that leaves you to a place where you have no other option to do anything else. And in this world, people have twisted and contorted and turned themselves out of the way in pursuit of sin and self. And nothing has changed. Paul here is writing to a church 2,000 years ago, and he says, look out at the culture, and you see that it is a crooked and perverse generation. And we look outside the world today, and we see the same thing. It is a crooked and perverse generation. 
People have still hardened their hearts to the knowledge of God. They have closed their ears to the truth of Scripture. They have twisted their lives into confusion, all in an order to spurn the God who created them. All in an effort to erase the knowledge of God from their heart that every single person has. There is not a person on the face of this earth who does not know that God exists. For Roman tells us that God has revealed himself enough in nature that every single person knows that God exists. But they have chosen to harden their heart to the knowledge of his revelation. So Paul says, look at the world. Look at those people that are living out there, this crooked and perverse generation. Brothers and sisters, look outside of us and see those people who so desperately need something. And what do they need? They don't need more self-help, right? They don't need more money. They don't need more government intervention. What they need is the truth of God's word. And Paul says, you appear there as lights in the world. The word light is the idea of a luminary. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We know that light is often used to, to describe Jesus himself, but also to describe what we are as Christians in the world, because what did, Matthew, what did uh, in Matthew, what did Jesus say to his disciples? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The original language that Paul uses here as appearing as lights in the world is the idea of a procession of people moving through the darkness of night with torches blazing lighting the path so that it can be clearly seen to walk upon. If you ever walked anywhere in the middle of the night when it's dark and the moon is either uh, set or the moon is covered up by the clouds, you realize how dark it can be. And you struggle to find where you're going. But if all of a sudden you remember, oh, I've got a, a flashlight in my pocket, right? We don't really carry torches around anymore. We pull a flashlight from our pocket and immediately we're able to see. We're immediately able to see the dangers on our path. We're immediately able to see the path that we want to walk on. And we are called, brothers and sisters, to be a light to this world. To shine to them that they see the danger that is there, but also to see the path that they can walk upon. Have you ever taken a trip down to the coast? You've seen lighthouses that scatter the Atlantic seaboard, some of those still in use and some of them just museums now. But for a long time in human history, lighthouses were a critical part of navigation across the sea. There are many stories of sailors who were caught in storms, unsure of where they were because this is a period of time before computerized navigation. All you had was the stars at night. If it was a storm and the clouds were covered, you really couldn't know where you were. But you would look out and you could see a lighthouse and that lighthouse told you two things. It showed you that land is coming. There's a harbor nearby, but it also warns you of something else. There are rocks that you have to avoid. And we're to hold up the light that God has put in us to show this world there is danger coming. There is judgment coming for all of you if you do not put your faith and trust in Christ. But there's also this great hope that there is a harbor that you can anchor your ship in. And you can put your anchor down there and know that you will be at peace and security. So we're to have a life that shines the light of the gospel. 
but we're also to have a life that proclaims the truth. Paul continues this same thought because he moves into verse 16 and he says, holding fast the word of life. Holding fast means not giving it up. Holding fast means holding it securely and understanding that this is what we are called to do. Hold fast. It's a term that means to stay resolute. Don't give up. Don't back down. Keep pushing forward. Hold fast. What are we called to do as Christians? Now, in this room, there are people from all kinds of backgrounds. In this church, we have electricians and we have lawyers. We have teachers. We have stay-at-home moms. We have everybody and anybody. And so when we look at our Christian life, we're not looking at what particular profession does God call us to because God calls us to many different things. But there is one universal thing that God calls every single one of us to, and that is holding fast the word of life, holding out the truth of the gospel wherever we go and whatever we do. Paul had already encouraged them in chapter one, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. How do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? By holding fast the word of life. Now, the word of life is not natural in this world. This world is filled with people who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. They need life breathed back into them. They need someone hold out the word of life to them so that they would know and understand what it is that they're looking for. As you look out at the world today, you see people looking for hope in all kinds of different ways. They look for hope in fame. They look for hope in drugs or alcohol or sex or pursuit of any number of other things. But what do we find? We find that none of that provides to them the hope that they're looking for, provides for them the truth that they're desiring. And sometimes they don't even know what they're looking for. They're just out there doing it because they have nothing else or nothing better to do. And this world tells them, if you want to be happy, you become famous. If you want to be happy, you become rich. And if you accomplish all those things, then all your problems will go away. People are desperate for truth. And Paul is reminding the church, he's reminding the church at Philippi, and he's reminding the church at Barberville that this is our purpose, to shine at lights, as lights in this darkened world by declaring the truth of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Jesus said, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Peter, for you have been born again, not of seed which is parable and imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The most precious thing that we have as Christians is the word of life. The word that has transformed our own hearts, our own souls, made us into image bearers of God, but it is the word that God has given us both the privilege and the responsibility to take to others. F.F. Bruce said that, speaking of Christians, they are to present the gospel by the way they live as well as by the words they speak. No one would take their message seriously if their way of life was at variance with it. So Paul has told us that we are to live as Christians without grumbling or disputing, blameless above reproach, so that we can be as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Brothers and sisters, we are not just to talk about who Jesus is, but we're to live it out as well. One of my professors at Fruitland, 
And I, and I can only, he, he was quoting somebody else, but that's been 20 years ago, and I can't remember who he was quoting. So I'm, I'm saying this is not original with me. But he quoted somebody else, and he said, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And as Christians, we have to be very careful of not falling into that trap. As Baptists, as, as Reformed Baptists, we hold very highly to theology and doctrine. We hold very highly to the knowledge of God's Word and understanding these things. But brothers and sisters, if we aren't taking what we know up here and living it out out there, then we've missed the point. It's not just what happens on the inside, but it's what we are doing out in the world. We are to live our lives in such a way so that when others see us and they hear what we talk about and they hear the proclamations that we make, that they don't think, well, he says one thing and does another. No, we want them to see a life that says that's what they say to believe, and I know it must be true because that's exactly how they live out their life. It's a life that is found in Christ. It's a life that this world so desperately needs. It's a life that we are called to shine out and to give to this world. This is what we are called to do as Christians. In his commentary, Albert Barnes listed three reasons why Christians are to do this. Why are we to live out our light as a light in the world to hold fast the word of life? He says there are three reasons besides the fact that God commands it, right? That's the most important one. God commands it, really doesn't need any more. But he says, I think there are three more. He says, number one, because they are called into the church that they may be witnesses for God. This is the reason that God has put us here together. The reason that God has called all of us from different places. There are so many people in the room who have moved here over the last five to 10 years. People who have found this church through many different avenues and ways. The reason that God has put us here is because he said, I want this church, this group of people to be a light to Waynesville, North Carolina, to hand out the light of life to Waynesville, North Carolina. He says, number two, because they are kept on earth for that purpose. How many of you are alive and breathing in here this morning? You know why you're here? Because God has a purpose for you to do just this. If it were not true, God would have already taken you home. You're on this world right now, alive and breathing, because God has kept you here to shine the light of the gospel to other people, because that's what he has put us here for. And then thirdly, he said, because there are no others to do it. Lost people aren't going to warn other lost people about the judgment to come. People who are outside of Christ are not going to encourage other people to put their faith and trust in Christ. It is a job that God has given only to us that only we can do. And because it is a job that nobody else will do, then we must do it all the more. Who will warn the wicked? Other wicked people won't do it. Only we can do it. One of my favorite short poems that I've ever heard. It's a poem that I've heard in my brain many times over and over again. I read it for the first time when I was probably around 10 or 11 years old in a book called Why Revival Tarries by a man named Leonard Ravenhill. And it says this, Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion 
with the world around you damned. And over and over again, I've heard that repeated in my mind. We are put here and called to this task. This is what God has called us to do. This is what God expects us to do. And this is what we must be doing. We proclaim truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. So not only do we live a life that proclaims truth, but finally, I want you to notice that we live a life that pleases your leaders. Look at the last part of verse 16. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory that I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The day of Christ is Christ's return, his second coming. And it's on that day when all the Christians will stand before God. We're not talking about the judgment of the wicked. We're talking about the judgment of the righteous. And oftentimes people don't understand there is a judgment day for Christians. We stand before God and we're judged based upon the things that we did and we didn't do and not by whether we go to heaven or hell, but based upon the rewards that we will receive from God above. And Paul says on that day, he says, I want to know that based upon your life, that I will have a reason to glory or to be proud of you. It's really the idea of boasting. And it's, it's interesting because we think about boasting and we think, well, why would the apostle Paul say he wants to be prideful? He wants to be boastful because so many places we see in scripture that point to the sinfulness of that mindset, the sinfulness of pride, the sinfulness of boasting. But however, when it comes to people walking in Christ, when it comes to people demonstrating the change of God in their life, demonstrating their obedience to him, there is a great reason to be proud because Paul was not glorying or boasting or proudful in something about himself. He was glorying in what God had done in the lives of the church at Philippi. And he repeated this in other places. Second Corinthians, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are the, your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. First Thessalonians, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, I want to be able to look at you as a church and see what God is doing there and have reason to be proud and to celebrate and to glorify God because of what you are doing, walking in obedience and faith. And the reason that Paul said that he wanted to do this, he says, I want to know that I didn't waste my life. He says that I did not run or toil in vain. Paul loves to use the language of athletes. And here, because he uses the idea of the word run, and it means to advance rapidly and progress freely. And it also points to the idea of expanding or expending your strength and performance. And athletic events would have been something that, that Paul and, and even the Philippians would have been well aware of with the Olympics and watching the different events that would have happened, they would have known what it was like to watch a marathon, to watch a race, to watch uh, boxers and to watch those who would give everything about their physical strength in order to try to win the prize. Paul used this same language in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? They didn't have participation trophies in, in the first century. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not myself be disqualified. 
Paul says, I'm giving my life for this. And he says, I don't want to come to the end and think and look back that I've wasted it. He says, so live your life in such a way of obedience to Christ that at the end I can look back and be joyful at the endurance that he had to go through. Paul says, I'm giving up everything. He says, I'm beating my own body. I'm going to prison. I'm suffering in, in shipwrecks. I'm suffering in trial and tribulation. He says, but I'm doing it for the glory of God and I'm doing it because this is what God has called me to do. And he's really saying, don't let me down. I don't want to come to the end of my life and realize that I toiled in vain. Toil is a wearisome effort. It's laboring to exhaustion. Paul has endured faithfully much for the cause of the gospel. He's willing to suffer more. He's willing to go even to death, but he doesn't want it to be meaningless. He's calling them to a full obedience with Christ. It is a joy for a pastor to know that his people are walking in obedience. As your pastor this morning and as Pastor West just also agreed, it is a joy to know when your people are walking in obedience. There is an effort and a toil that comes from pastoral ministry that not many people know outside of those who are pastors. But it's worth it all to see God's people walking in the path that God has intended them to do. I'll close with this. Matthew Henry said, it is a great joy to ministers when they perceive that they have not run in vain nor labored in vain, and it will be their rejoicing in the day of Christ when their converts will be their crown. Paul is calling us all here to a life of complete obedience through this process of sanctification. May God grant each of us this desire, this ability, and this pursuit of what God intends for us in our Christian life. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, this challenge for us as believers. Lord, as we look at each one of these areas, trusting in you, exemplifying the faith, shining in a darkened world, proclaiming the truth, pleasing the leaders that you have put over us. Lord, perhaps there's one or many of these areas we feel that we have fallen short on, but we're thankful this morning that there is hope in Christ and forgiveness in him. And the Lord, that at this moment where we commit ourselves to this pursuit, Lord, we want to be obedient to you. We want to trust in your goodness and your faithfulness in our life. Lord, we want to take the, the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs it. We want to be used by you. And Lord, in the end, we want to be glorifying to you that you would be pleased in the work of our hands, pleased in the obedience to your commands. And Lord, we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name.